0: All right, you can take your Bibles and go to Isaiah 48 to start. I wanted to talk a little bit about prophecy today, um, because really the birth of Jesus Christ stems from prophecy. Matthew often quotes a lot of prophecy uh, concerning the birth. Uh, Some of them, he's the only one who quotes it. And uh, here in Isaiah 48... Starting in verse 1, it says, Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And pay attention to verses 3 and 4 here. Isaiah 48, James. Good morning. (laughs) Verse 3 says, I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass, because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee, before it came to pass, I showed it thee, lest thou shouldest say, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. So we're in Isaiah 48, but a lot has happened before this in Isaiah. You have Israel and Judah, and they've been very wicked, very carnal. They have not trusted in the Lord through his provision through everything that he brought them through in the past. They forgot him. They forsook him. And he's restating uh, some of the the things he had prophesied and he brought to pass, and he's declaring this to them. He says, I've said these things. I've brought them to pass. And he says it's because you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew. Because Israel had been very stubborn. They'd been very wicked. They had not trusted in the Lord But what God is saying here is he has declared things in the beginning and he is going to bring them to pass. And that's what some of the prophecies we're going to talk about concerning Christ's birth. These prophecies were declared and some of them have uh, immediate um, implications, such as when we talk about, if we get to it today, Isaiah 7 verse 14 is probably the most famous verse um, about the virgin birth, how he declared it. And then in Matthew, we see the fulfillment but similarly, in chapter 8, there was a birth. In Isaiah chapter 8, the next chapter, there was a birth of Maharshalo Hashbaz. And we see sort of an immediate promise fulfilled, but then we see a later promise fulfilled, the ultimate fulfillment in the perfect one, Jesus Christ, who would be born of a virgin, not only a young woman as Isaiah's wife. But I want you to take your Bible now, With that thought in mind about how God declares prophecies and they come to pass, let's look at one where he's going to make a declaration uh, concerning the birth. And this is with regards to the birth being from the line of David. Okay? So if you have a pen and paper handy, we're going to jump through some scripture. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. This is a promise to... David, regarding Solomon, but there's more to the promise than just Solomon's reign. And you'll see that in a couple of the terms he uses here. In 2 Samuel 7, look at verse, starting in verse 11. "'And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused to rest, caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in-house.' And we know that house was built under Solomon. Verse 12, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, when David dies, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, notice this, forever. And I, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. We'll go there in just a second, but he reiterates this in 1 Chronicles 17, but you notice Solomon did not reign forever. Christ will be the one who will reign forever. The promise was regarding Solomon, and he had peace in his days, but even Solomon committed great iniquity by um, going in, in, in idolatry and sexual sin and so on and so forth. Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of this promise to David, that Jesus would come from the line of David himself. And we'll see that as we go on. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 17 now, in verse 11. First Chronicles 17, 11. Says, and it shall come to pass when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me in house, and I will establish his throne, there it is again, forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee. There it is, reiterated again. Notice verse 14. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. There's more to this than just David's immediate son, Solomon. And we see that being, which will be fulfilled in the future, but we see in the birth of Christ how he was born of the line uh, through Mary, who came of the line of David, from Abraham to David and on down in Mary. So he was from the line of David. Go to Isaiah now chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1. And it says in verse 1 of Isaiah 11, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, that's David's father, Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Now even the Jew agrees that this is a prophetical passage. When we discuss Regarding the Messiah, when we discuss Isaiah seven, they deny that 7:14 is a messianic passage, and I think they also deny eight and perhaps and, and nine as well. They point those to be uh, either Hezekiah or Maharshalo-Hashbaz. They do not believe that those are referring to any messianic figure. But chapter 11 is very clear, very, very clear, that a Messiah is going to rise up out of the line of David. And he's going to have power. He's going to judge with righteousness. Verse 6 goes on to say that the wolf will lie with the lamb. And we know this is kingdom talk. And in Jesus' day, the people were expecting a king. They were looking for a king. They were looking for someone to lay the law down against the Roman oppression. They were looking for someone to bring them out of captivity. Because in Isaiah's day, the Assyrian kingdom was coming up against Israel Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern, they were at war with one another, and Assyria was coming along, and they eventually sack the northern kingdom Israel. And in the same manner, you see some similarities in Jesus's day when Rome was ruling, and there was that great oppression, and we see how uh, under Hezekiah, back in Hezekiah's day after Ahaz, that he would use Hezekiah to bring them and, and destroy 185,000 of the Assyrians, they would be destroyed. Well, in similar fashion, Jesus or Hezekiah is a type of Jesus, right? A type of Christ. And how Jesus Christ would ultimately be the Savior of the whole world. He would bring them out from the oppression of sin, right? And we see similarities using these prophecies. We'll get to more of that later. But turn with me now to Jeremiah 23. There's a lot... Contain in a study of this sort, so I encourage you to write these down. As I was studying this, it was more and more and more and more little golden nuggets I came across, so we won't get to it all, but take notes and I encourage you to study this. Jeremiah 23 says this in verse 5, "...behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch." And a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Very, very important there. Let's see where some of this is fulfilled now. Go to Matthew chapter 1, and we see it in the very first verse of the book of Matthew. Verse 1 of Matthew 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, skip, skip verse 6, verse 5 rather, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rakab, sorry, and Boaz begat Obed, Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, remember the branch of of Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon. And as we go on and on, we get to eventually Jesus, Christ being born uh, from Mary, verse 16. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And it links that from Abraham to David of 14 generations, David to the captivity, 14 generations. And then we have the birth of Christ, from the line of David. It was fulfilled. That Jesus out of the tribe of Judah he would be born through the line of David and the people were looking for a king there was great joy when they heard the Messiah was coming uh, from the Magi from the shepherds they all expected a king because they wanted them uh, they wanted him to come and take them from the oppression of Rome that's what they expected but he was on another mission and we can see comparisons um, of that as we look at these prophecies. Look now at Luke 3 quickly, more on this about David, Luke 3. And I want you to look with me at verse 31. Here it is again, just to reiterate about David, which was the son of Malaya, which was the son of Menon, which was the son of Metatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. This is Joseph's side of the line. And now we know that Joseph could not be the physical father of Jesus anyway because of the curse of Jeconias. We're not going to go into that curse, but Joseph is not the father of Jesus. God is the father of Jesus, born through Mary and the Holy Spirit. God made it happen that way. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But Just a couple of notes here. They were expecting a king. There was oppression from Rome during this time. And it's similar to the days of when Isaiah and uh, Micah and the other prophets are speaking. There's oppression from Assyria. There's oppression from Babylon. And you see these similarities as you're going through the prophets, through the scripture. You see how the oppression is on the scene. And you also see how Israel and Judah, they're sustaining that oppression that Uh, conquering from these nations because of their sin, their transgression. Even God in His mercy, He desires to deliver them, but we'll see in a moment when we look at Isaiah 7, even Ahaz refuses God's help. And so those are some of the things to note. But God wants to redeem His people, and He's going to prophesy that one day they'll all uh, be redeemed and in the kingdom, this king will be reigning Now I want to discuss the place. We discussed David, that Jesus Christ would come from the line of David. Now let's look at where he would be born. This is actually very interesting. I had not studied uh, the prophecy concerning about Rachel and Ramah and the weeping, but we're going to look at that. I want you to go with me to Genesis 35. Genesis chapter 35. This is another one that Matthew quotes himself. He's doing a quotation from Jeremiah, not Genesis. But look at Genesis chapter 35 and look at verse 16 with me here. It says in verse 16, And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. You think of Bethlehem Ephrathah, right? There were two Bethlehems, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name ben but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So there's Bethlehem. There's this note regarding Rachel's death. She was buried uh, on the way to Ephrath in Bethlehem. So now with that thought in mind, go back to Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew makes this claim. And he's quoting from Jeremiah, and we're going to look at that. But Matthew 2, verse 17, says this. Look at at 16 here. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, because God told them not to come back to him, so they left. And so Herod felt mocked. Herod's a bad dude. When he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, he was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Because Herod did not want anyone to rise up and take over, because remember, the people were looking for a king, and so when they knew uh, Herod and his men knew the prophecy of Micah 5-2, that a ruler would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5-2, which we'll look at that in a moment. And so he didn't want this messianic figure to rise up and take control over him. Herod wanted the power, so he was going to kill all the children. And that's what he did in Bethlehem, those two years old and under, which is a great atrocity. Verse 17, notice this. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, Jeremiah, saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Remember, Rachel had just given birth to Benjamin and then she died. And she died next to Bethlehem on the way. And so he's quoting Jeremiah. So the the first question that comes to mind is why? Well, let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And chapter 31 is what he's quoting. 31, and let's look at the context here. 31 in verse 1, and we're going to read a little bit here. Jeremiah 31, 1 says, "'At the same time, saith the Lord, "'will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. "'Thus saith the Lord, "'the people which were left of the sword "'found grace in the wilderness, "'even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest.'" The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Let's skip, skip down to verse 13. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old, together. For I will turn... Their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. And here it is. Notice this, verse 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, Rachel, weeping for her children refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord. They shall come again from the land of the enemy. Here's the reason why I think Matthew quotes this and mentions this. Obviously, Bethlehem being the key. Rachel was buried near Bethlehem. But what was going on with Rachel? She bare a child, and then she died. And we see that in um, what's this note I have here? In the time of Jeremiah the weeping and the great wailing and the the Assyrian captivity coming onto the scene, and they were under great oppression, but God would eventually lead them out. He would save them out of that oppression, the physical disaster that they were in at that time. He would lead them out. He would use Hezekiah to help in that, and He would lead them out of that. And eventually we know that He's going to rule and reign in the kingdom, and there will be no more uh, enemy until Satan will come back at the end of the kingdom, right? and will rule and reign forever, and he himself is the Savior. The, I think the parallel here that Matthew is drawing out is that Jesus Christ is born, and he would be the ultimate Savior, and he's born in Bethlehem, and he would be the ultimate Savior, not just from the physical enemy, but from the enemy of sin and death and hell. And I think that's the parallel that is being made here. That's why Matthew quotes Jeremiah. In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted, because they are not. Let's see what other note I have here. Um, Isaiah chapter 10. Go there. Isaiah chapter 10. Again, if you have a pencil and paper or your phone, I encourage you to write these down. Because the study goes much further in depth than this. 10 verse 24 of Isaiah says this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt, for yet a very little while, and the ign- indignation shall cease, my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Areb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that the burden shall be taken away, listen to this, the burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Why do I bring this passage up? Assyria, Assyria was the enemy of that day during Isaiah and Jeremiah's time. We, we see Babylon as well, and the, the, some of the reference goes hand in hand there, but Assyria was taking captive the northern, and they would attack Judah, and they were the enemy, and so in this passage here, he references after the manner of Egypt. God is going to do something after the manner of Egypt. I talked about this in a sermon quite some time ago about Isaiah. And so God is going to save them in like manner from the Assyrians, just like he did in Egypt. And so when you, the, this, in similar fashion, Jesus Christ being born, he would be the savior of the entire world from another common enemy, sin. And I think these are a lot of the parallels through these prophecies. God is using the current day of Isaiah and Jeremiah being captive under the oppression of the enemy. And then when he relates it to Christ, we see that Jesus Christ would, he would eventually become king, yes, but he would be the savior of the world from the enemy of sin and death and hell. And there's a lot of common theme. God saved them out of Egypt. All the people had to do is trust him. God would save them from Assyria. All the people had to do is trust him. You see in Isaiah 7, that Ahaz did, seven and eight, Ahaz did not trust God. He went his own way. And so he would, um, Ahaz would fall and eventually die, and Hezekiah would come up, who did trust in God, and Hezekiah, God would use Hezekiah. Or actually, God, Hezekiah was fretful, and he prayed to God for help. And Isaiah said, I've heard, uh, God heard your prayer, I'll bring you through. And 185,000 of the Assyrians were destroyed. Well, in the same fashion, Jesus Christ would save his people, and all we have to do is believe, believe in the Savior. A lot of parallels between uh, the Old and the New Testament here. God doesn't change when he goes from the Old to the New. It's always been the same. He's just using current-day illustration through uh, Assyria, Babylon, through these prophets speaking, and we see that thin red line of the Savior streaking through it as well. Uh, Micah five two go there as well concerning the place regarding Bethlehem, I got off on a little tangent there. <laughs> Micah five verse two. Look at verse one. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, there it is again. Though thou be little. Among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This is one of my personal favorites here in Micah 5, 2, regarding the birth and, and the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Their prediction is his ruling, but I, I love this at the end, you see that his his from is everlasting. He always has been. Some Bibles and some commentators translate that as ancient. It's it's not correct. It's everlasting. The word, the term translates to everlasting. How Christ would be from everlasting, and he would be born in Bethlehem, how this little baby, and he'll eventually reign as king. Very fascinating prophecy. This is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says in Matthew 2, 5 and 6, and they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people, Israel. And this is the whole reason that Herod rose up and he killed all the children to and under. When the Magi didn't bring back word to him, he got upset and he killed all the children, right? And that's where we get the weeping prophecy with regards to Rachel in Ramah, and we see Bethlehem is mentioned there as well. Now, he, another prophecy I want to look at, we're running out of time, is with regards to Egypt. In Matthew, you're already there. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 13. Like I said, this is, my intention here was just to kind of look at this, look at this and, and give you some notes, and then you can expound upon this, use the cross-references and expound upon this later. Isaiah, Jeremiah, there's a lot more mentioned in these books that I can't cover. Uh, Matthew 2 verse 13 says, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Because Herod doesn't want him to be king, right? That's what they expected. Um, For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Notice this, verse 15. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, for a lot of people, this is a very, it seems like a very ambiguous uh, quotation of Hosea, Hosea 11. Go ahead and go there. Hosea 11. This is where Matthew quotes this phrase, out of Egypt have I called my son. So like Jesus, uh, Joseph is told to bring his family into Egypt, and then he would eventually leave Egypt and come back to the land of Judah. Hosea 11.1, 1, this is the quotation here. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, to understand this, we have to understand that uh, there's a lot of typology and prophetical or prophecies in the Old Testament that they relate to Christ, but they're not necessarily uh, a perfect relation. For example, types of Christ in the Old Testament. Joseph was a type of Christ, but obviously Joseph himself is not perfect. He's not sinless. But there are things that happen to him in his life that relate to the story of Christ. And there's certain prophecies that are said that relate to Christ, but it's not necessarily saying here that Jesus is the nation of Israel. Jesus is not the literal, physical nation of Israel. But we see a parallel from this prophecy, and we see what we can draw from it. It says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. God brought Israel out of Egypt by his power. God made that happen. And in like manner, when we see in Matthew that Joseph was told by God to go into Egypt... And he would save Joseph and his family from the wrath of Herod. We see some parallels there. And God made this to happen. And I think that's the intention of the Holy Spirit here. Out of Egypt have I called my son. And Jesus, and and we see Israel was called son, right? And we see Jesus is the son. It's a parallel there. Israel, uh, obviously, not all of them believed in him, but he. He delivered them out of Egypt, and Jesus, who is the Son of God, in the same manner, he would come out of Egypt back into Judah. He was told, God told Joseph to bring him into Egypt, and then he would come out out of Egypt, have I called my son. So we see these parallels here using the prophecy. Very, very neat. Uh, both of those events were directed by the Lord, um, and Jesus himself experienced what Hosea wrote regarding Israel. I think that's the main intention of that prophecy. The main one I wanted to get to with the time we have left, though, is Isaiah 7 and verse 14. One of the most popular of them all, one of the most debated of them all is Isaiah 7. Also Isaiah 9, and we may touch on that, but we don't have a lot of time left. Isaiah 9, or Isaiah 7 verse 14, if you'll go there. Isaiah 7. It's very important to um, know what is surrounding... This passage in Isaiah 7 to know what is going on uh, with regards to Assyria, with regards to Ahaz, Isaiah, eventually Hezekiah. Because if you just read Isaiah 7, you're going to miss a lot of details. You need to know what is going on with regards to the northern and the southern kingdoms, how they're pitted against each other at this time, how Assyria is coming in and he's going to wipe out the northern, take them captive, right? So Isaiah 7, look at verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, so you have Assyria, you have the northern king uh, of Israel, the northern ten tribes mentioned, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So they had made, they teamed up, the northern with Assyria teamed up to come down against Judah, Jerusalem, and it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, they teamed up, and his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, go forth now to meet Ahaz, Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern, thou and Shirjashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, listen closely to this, verse four. Say unto him, take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tales of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria, Assyria, and of the son of Remaliah of Israel. Because remember, they teamed up, and they're coming against Ahaz. They're coming against Jerusalem. They're going to sack them, right? And so Isaiah is telling Ahaz, don't be afraid of these guys. A little bit of background. Ahaz is a bad, bad dude. He's a bad dude. One one of the worst kings. Terrible, terrible. We don't have time to look, but if you were to write down 2 Kings 15 and, let's see, it's uh, 2 Chronicles 28. 2 Kings 15, 2 Chronicles 28. If you were to write those down, you'll see how it describes Ahaz's reign. And one of the first things it describes is his idolatry and the wickedness he committed in which he let his son pass, son or sons, I can't recall, pass through the fire as an offering unto Molech. Ahaz, very wicked, wicked king. But we see here God through Isaiah saying, don't be afraid of the northern king coming down with Assyria coming against you. Don't be afraid. God, one of the themes you see through the prophets and through Scripture is that even when you have someone so terrible such as Ahaz, right, God is still showing his loving kindness. And we see that a lot in the book of Isaiah. God, he's pleading with his people. The, the beginning of the book is Isaiah 118. You see the, the theme is set there. How through all their wickedness, 1 through 17, 18, God says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins um, be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool, right? And he wants his people to believe in him. Let's see Ahaz's response as we continue. You'll see why this is important with regards to verse 14. Because... Verse five, Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us make a breach therein for us and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tibial. So they want to take over Jerusalem. Seven, thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. I love that verse. God's not going to let it happen. Verse eight, for the head of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is resin, And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. Assyria is going to sack them, the northern ten. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. I like that last phrase there. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Because Ahaz is not going to believe in God. Ahaz is going to reach out to the Assyrians and, and, and team up with them and, for protection and stuff. He's not going to trust in God. But look at what God says to Ahaz. Verse 10 Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Ask it as far down to hell as you can think or as far up to heaven as you can think. Ask a sign that I'm going to deliver you. Very important. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, listen to his response, I will not ask. Yikes. Neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, there are some moments in scripture where it was a temptation for people to ask God for a sign because they doubted his deliverance. But Ahaz here, he Uh, didn't want to trust in God. He had already chosen, but he was wicked. He chose not to trust in God for deliverance. He was going to seek out another way through idolatry, through the other kings. So he refuses even God telling him to ask for a sign. He refuses it altogether. 13, and he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? God did not like that response. So here's what he's going to do about it. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know is interpreted God with us, Emmanuel. And so you may think this is kind of random thrown in Isaiah. Why why is this here? Well, I believe it's a twofold purpose. And we see parallels between what would happen immediately and what was going to happen in Jesus Christ's day or Jesus Christ's day, sorry. And so, we don't have time to go into it, but as, we go, as you, if you we were to go to Isaiah 8 and 9, you'll see that in Isaiah 8, a child is born from Isaiah himself. There is a child, uh, Mahershalah Hashbaz. I said that right, Louis? Mahershalah Hashbaz is born from Isaiah, and it appears that there is some form of an immediate fulfillment. Now, there's some dispute. Okay, there's a lot of dispute amongst commentators, is... Um, is the, is the current day here in Isaiah's day, and Ahaz's day, is it referring to Mahershala Hashbaz, or is it referring to Hezekiah, right? Isaiah 9:6. 6, um, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And I know the names at the end refer to Christ. But what is this son that immediately fulfills the promise that God gave as a sign to Ahaz? Okay, so regardless, I personally think it's Mahershala Hashbaz, that this son is given... And then eventually Hezekiah would rise up and bring deliverance from Assyria. And so we see as you go through 8 and 9 that there is a immediate fulfillment of this promise that um, a woman would conceive and bear a son. And you'll see deliverance eventually for Judah, not for Israel. They would be sacked from Assyria. You see deliverance. You see a form of a salvation there. But ultimately, Isaiah 7.14 shows in the future an actual virgin, not Isaiah's wife, an actual virgin would conceive through the Holy Spirit and bear a son, and he would be the literal God with us on earth. So the, the, you notice there, the prophecies a lot of times, they have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. I'm a big believer in this, the near and the far. There was something that immediately happened that God made a promise to Ahaz and through Isaiah and would fulfill through Hezekiah. But then you see the ultimate the uh, actual ultimate um, fulfillment through Christ himself, and that he would be actually born of a virgin. Because this word Alma is the word for virgin in Isaiah seven fourteen. 14. Uh, Behold a virgin. The word is Alma. It's not the word Betula. And there's a great controversy over this. I think it can be made very, very clear. The word Alma, I think it can mean one of two things, because it's not necessarily 100% clear. If you have a dispute with me on this, fair enough, show me concerning the scripture. I think it can mean simply young woman who is not married or specifically a young woman who is a virgin. The word betula very specifically means virgin, very specifically, but that's not the word used here. It's alma. So it could mean young woman or young woman who is specifically a virgin. And we don't have the time to go through the cases in which that happens. It's nine times in the Old Testament, Alma's used. But, sorry, nine. And so, Isaiah's wife bear a child as the immediate fulfillment. But then we see later that an actual young virgin through Mary would bear a child, Jesus Christ, who is the literal God with us. And there doesn't have to be a contradiction or a dispute in the scripture, um, as if the word had to be betula for this to actually happen. A lot of, the, um, a lot of Jews um, dispute this with regards to the use of the word, and they say, well, Isaiah had a son there, so it can't be talking about Jesus, but, then, but we can see that there's a near and a far fulfillment using this prophecy, Isaiah 7.14. And Matthew quotes it through the Holy Spirit. He quotes this in I don't know if I wrote it down. Matthew 1. Go there. Matthew 1. Let's see if I have this right. Yes. Matthew 1. Look with me, though, at verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which which being interpreted is God with us. And then it goes on to say that Mary and Joseph did not come together until Jesus was born. So here's some of my comparisons here that I make uh, with regards to this, and, and why I believe, um, sure, there was an immediate fulfillment using Isaiah 7.14 in Isaiah's day, but why I believe God uh, uses it as a quotation through Matthew as well, okay? Because we see during Isaiah's time, God is not, first of all, He's not very happy with Judah and Israel. He's not very happy with His people at all. Um, he's not very happy with Ahaz, and Assyria is laying waste and taking control. And Ahaz, he transgressed greatly. And um, in God's many merciful attempts, he's always attempting to save his people. He saved them out of Egypt. He was going to save them out of Assyria. And it's, it's a picture, ultimately, that even though this, this great transgression by his own people and this oppression from the enemy was coming upon, that God would save. God would save and so we see in like manner that in Jesus' day, there's the great Roman oppression, the people were sinful, many would reject him such of his own people, such as Ahaz rejected, right? You see a lot of parallels that even so, Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment in that not only he would save them from the, the oppression, but he would save them from their sin. And that's why we see here in Matthew one twenty one, for he shall save his people from their sins. And it's it's such a beautiful picture when you you compare the Old and the New Testament, when the the prophecy is made, Isaiah is using the modern-day events, but then we see the ultimate fulfillment in what Jesus Christ would do as the perfect Lamb of God, the Son of God, who would ultimately fulfill and save His people, not just from the enemy, the physical enemy, but from sin and death and hell. I hope you appreciated that this morning. Um... Couple references here that I didn't get to get to was uh, obviously Isaiah seven. Don't just stop there, but read through twelve as well. Chapter twelve of Isaiah. Take a peek at Isaiah twenty-eight verses fourteen through nineteen, also. Um, and you can you can compare this also with how Israel's rejection. We see it in John one. A little bit of Romans nine through eleven as well. You can note those things. But ultimately, the prophecies are concerning, they concern the day in which they are written, and there are some things fulfilled, but then we see the ultimate fulfillment through Jesus Christ and who He is and what He would do, how He would be the Son of God, perfect, without any sin, and how He would die and ultimately pay for the sin of the world. The baby, born of a virgin, would die and pay for all the sin of all the world. So I hope you appreciated that little study. Um, I encourage you to look more into Isaiah and Jeremiah concerning the birth of Christ and concerning what he would ultimately do, being the Savior not only of the enemies, but the Savior of the world. So that was more on the prophetical birth. If you're watching online, and um, none of this is really of great concern to you if you don't know for sure if you were to die, you would go to heaven. The prophecy concerning his birth was with regards to what he would eventually do for us and how he died on the cross and paid for all of our sins. I'll go ahead and share this because there might be somebody watching here on Christmas Eve, you can trust Christ as your Savior, letting this hand represent you and me and the whole world and letting this block of sin represent our sin. We all have sin on us, but God loved us just like he loved his people and he kept trying to um, redeem them and he wanted to show mercy on them. He loved them and he loves us the same. He doesn't like our sin though, just like... When Ahaz rejected him, he he hates it. He hates the sin. And so he brought the oppression on him. But what we deserve is greater than just any Assyrian oppression, any Roman oppression. We deserve to die and go to hell because of our sin. But God doesn't want us to go to hell because he loves us. He wants you and I to go to heaven. But to go there, we have to be perfect. We're not perfect. We all have sin. And so God did something about it. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, God with us. He came down from heaven. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and in doing so, he had no sin. Because he was born in such a way through the Holy Ghost, Jesus had no sin, in which he did not have to die. We deserve to die. But Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, perfect, sinless, lived a perfect life, and who had no sin? Jesus himself took all of our sin on himself, fulfilling an, another multitude of prophecies in doing so, hundreds in doing so. Jesus died for that sin. He was buried in the grave. All this is written in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, he was buried in the grave, he rose from the dead, the sin barriers removed, and anyone who would believe in him would have everlasting life. Don't be like Ahaz, who, re- who did not believe, who did not trust in the Lord, but believe in Jesus Christ, and you receive everlasting life. Believe in him, and you receive eternal life. The sin was paid. All you have to do is believe in him. Let's pray together, and then we'll close on out and get ready for the morning service. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the prophecies you made. Um, Thank you that even though we are hard-headed, we're stiff-necked, as you wrote in Isaiah 48, that you gave us your word that we can study, we can compare Scripture with Scripture, and we can learn from these things and understand the ultimate purpose for which they were written, that Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, that he would eventually, ultimately Yes, he'll be a king one day, but he died for our sin. He was buried, he rose again. Thank you for that. Thank you for uh, this church where we can meet and learn together. I pray that this message, as people listen online, it would bless many, many more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you. We'll meet in here in a few minutes.